We survived the war. We survived the greatest mass eradication in modern history. And we arrived home to find the people who did this to us, our neighbors. So tell me, what should we do? Shake hands, turn a blind eye. In the clip we just heard from Amazon original series Hunters, actor Al Pacino presents one of the show's most disconcerting ideas. The idea that after World War II, men who worked for the Nazi regime were suddenly men who lived next door. Over the past four episodes, we've discussed a handful of paper clippers who in one way or another made their way into America's consciousness. Werner von Braun is the most obvious example. He was on television, in magazines. There's even a convention center named after him. Arthur Rudolph made international headlines when he renounced his American citizenship after being investigated by the OSI. And while Hubertus Strugholt isn't widely known, his work in aerospace medicine put his portrait on university walls and his name on libraries and awards, some of which were stripped away amid controversy and uproar. But paperclips rocketeers and aviation doctors combined aren't even 200 people. The total number of paperclippers who ultimately made homes in the United States is estimated at well over 1,000. So what about those hundreds of other prized mines from Nazi Germany? Where did they wind up? As we explore paperclips' connection to the United States military and American industry, the answers may surprise you. One thing's for sure. The paper clippers we're discussing today may not have been in the media or had their portraits in prestigious universities, but in communities across America, with their wives and children and white picket fences, they were our neighbors. And finally, as Paperclip comes to a close, Monique and I will take some time to reflect on everything we've talked about these past few weeks. This is Paperclip, a podcast series funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters. I'm Michael Ian Black, a comedian, a writer, a history buff, here with my co-host, Dr. Monique Laney. Monique is a historian who focuses on the history of technology. She's also a professor at Auburn University and the author of German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, Making Sense of the Nazi past during the civil rights era. Hello, Monique. Hey, Michael. As we've learned, Operation Paperclip began as a covert military operation. So it makes sense that most of the technology and personnel brought to the United States under Paperclip were used to benefit the U.S. military, not only the Army, but also the Air Force and Navy, which is a lot about what we're going to be focusing on today. And to help us with that, Monique and I have a special guest, someone whose name we've dropped before, Dr. Michael Neufeld. Uh, Mike is a renowned historian and the author of what many consider the definitive biography on Werner von Braun. So let's just sort of set the table here. Monique and Michael, we've talked about German rocket technology, why it was brought to the U.S. and how it was used here. But what other German technology were the Allies interested in after the war? They were interested in a lot of different technologies, you know, submarine technology, aerodynamics, everything related to aviation, the jet aircraft, of course. 
They were a little bit further along in wind tunnel development. And just to explain what that is, a wind tunnel is essentially an apparatus in which you can um, test how an object in flight would behave with high winds. So essentially, you're creating kind of a tunnel where you're forcing air in into that tunnel. And the aircraft that you're trying to test um, responds to that airflow, right? Some people might have done like iFly or something where you can like hover over air coming from below. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, it's really cool. I've done it. It's skydiving with you, you, where you're, you're safe, basically. Right. You do it from the ground. Right. So that's what a wind tunnel is. Right. I guess I didn't think of it that way. That's essentially a wind tunnel. Exactly. Right. Right. And so, and the, what the Germans had done was they were a step further in so far that they were really um, testing maybe more broadly um, types of things we can do. They were testing jet engines where the Americans weren't doing that yet. So they had developed wind tunnels further and could confirm some things already. Um, that the Americans hadn't been able to confirm yet. So were the Germans really more advanced in those areas than the Allies were? In some areas, yes. Most people think of this as the reason we brought them over to the United States is because they were so much more advanced. And that's really not true. That's really a myth. And part of that is because the U.S. itself was quite advanced. The Soviets, on the other hand, would have gained a whole lot more from bringing in German technologies. So the Allies were kind of in the same level of advancement in these technologies and the Soviets were behind all of us? In certain areas, they were much more behind, yes. They had not yeah. developed certain things. They had developed borscht, which is delicious. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I like vodka, too. So <laughs> Yeah, vodka's also very good. They are the world leaders in vodka, no question. <laughs> to this day, their vodka wind tunnel technology is unsurpassed. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, let me ask you about Walter Dornberger. He was a major general in the German army. And he was, if, if I'm not mistaken, Werner von Braun's boss in the V2 rocket program. And then we brought him to the United States to help us develop guided missiles. Who was Dornberger and what was he doing during the war? So Walter Dornberger was the military head of the German Army rocket program. He was the guy who really was the organizer in developing the V-2 rocket. Von Braun was his technical director, but Dornberger was an engineer himself, had an honorary doctorate, in fact, and was quite knowledgeable about the engineering dimensions of this. He was directly involved in the decisions to make the missiles in factories that use concentration camp labor. Dornberger, at the end of the war, surrendered with Von Braun and five other key members of the leadership of the program, you know, in the Bavarian Alps at the beginning of May 1945. And they were interrogated, but then they were separated. And Dornberger was sent to Britain, where they held him in a POW camp for two years, and they threatened to try him for war crimes for the indiscriminate bombing with the V-2 of London and other places. The irony of that, of course, was how do you make a case for indiscriminate bombing when the Royal Air Force was indiscriminately bombing Germany with bombers, as we were? Because the winners always get to decide what's the war crime and what isn't. Yeah, right. And so in the end, the British gave up on that. And uh, he came to uh, Wright Field in, near Dayton, Ohio, which was the main technical base for the Air Force and where almost all of the Air Force paper clippers ended up going first. 
And he ended up becoming a vice president at Bell Aircraft in Buffalo. His career in the United States ended up being unimpeded by his war record. In the case of a lot of these guys, it seems like they didn't really pay much of a price for their wartime activities. We did filter out some of the worst people, but you know, we did take a couple of people whose records were a little dubious. So Monique, can you explain what we're looking for when we're studying wind tunnel technology? And were there any big technological advancements that came out of those German wind tunnel tests that we then applied to American technology? One of the areas where the Germans were really ahead of us were in, in testing transonic and supersonic speeds. And supersonic, most people know, is faster than the speed of sound, right? But transonic is kind of the stage just between. So that's between 0.8 and 1.2 Mach, essentially just before you reach the speed of sound. And those two areas, they were testing a whole lot more than we had done here in the U.S. That was a place where they'd invested a lot. And we're very interested in seeing what kind of wind tunnel technology the Germans had and how we could copy it or how we could seize it. We really did walk off with pieces of German wind tunnels. And notably, the former Peinemunda wind tunnels were used to develop the V2. They had been moved to the Bavarian Alps. And we took large parts of them, particularly the test sections through which the high-speed air runs and brought them back to the United States and started building wind tunnels up right outside Washington, D.C., not far from where I'm sitting. So we had these German aerospace engineers, these Nazis, who then were living in the suburbs just outside of Washington, D.C.? Right. And there were nine of them who went to the White Oak Naval Ordnance Laboratory. I'm thinking particularly of Peter Wegener, who uh, ended up later as a professor at Yale. He's one of the members of this group that went to White Oak. He was from a liberal Berlin family. He didn't like the Nazis, but it was a career. And he was an aerodynamicist with a physics background, and he ended up coming to the United States and becoming an American. Mike, I just wanted to chime in real quick. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. When we talk about paperclip, we're also talking about multiple generations. Some of the people weren't even old enough to be part of the apparatus at the time, right? So by the time they come here, they are engineers and scientists from Germany, but they couldn't have been leading figures in any way. Right. You know, in the second or third wave of paperclip, they may have been school students. They may have got sucked into war service at the very end of the war, but they were not actually scientists or engineers at that time. So it depends when you look at paperclip and who's coming when. Well, you're you're making an important distinction, and there is a a subtlety that is lost on people, I think, like me, I know like me, who are really learning about this entire episode. Um, Because there is a kind of monolithic thought process in the way we think about what the German regime was like, uh, and, and what the German citizenry was like at that time. You know, everybody who lives in a totalitarian society confronts a reality totally different than what we're used to. It's a one-party state with secret police. If you don't agree with the government, your choices are resistance leading almost inevitably to jail or execution or 
keeping your head down and not getting in it and not making your opinions obvious if you oppose the regime. And a lot of the German population believed in Hitler. A lot more, in fact, probably believed in Hitler than believed in all of Nazi ideology, which they may or may not have bought into in all dimensions. So it's a complicated reality. You talked about one of the paper clippers who was, and I already forgot his name, Peter. Uh, uh, Wegener, yeah. A, yeah, who ended up becoming a professor at Yale, and he kind of represented one end of those scientists and engineers who came over. But then you have somebody like Rudolf Herman, who was a supersonics expert and directed a wind tunnel facility and ended up working for the U.S. Air Force. But uh, Yeah, he was actually Wegener's boss. <laughs> oh, interesting. And wasn't he, though, one of these ardent Nazis? Yes, absolutely. And and uh, Begener's very interesting memoir called The Painting of Wind Tunnels talks about this. You know, Herman was a party member, enthusiastic party member, a real believer, and obnoxiously so as far as Wegener was concerned. Of course, at the end of the war, Herman had to suddenly lose his enthusiasm, conveniently get rid of it, because suddenly the war was over and the Nazis had lost. Now, I want to make another distinction here. Notably, Herrmann, because of his position, was not involved with the concentration camp labor and those kinds of things. This is something that I struggle with just as a layman, the idea that you could be an upper echelon Nazi, literally a, a Nazi, a member of the party, not be culpable directly in war crimes. I don't know how to draw the distinction between being a believer in Nazism, a supporter of Nazism. And and I don't know how to reconcile that with then being brought over to the United States and ending up as the director of the Research Institute at the University of Alabama, as Herman was. I can understand that you didn't commit any crimes, but to me, it seems like your previous enthusiasm for that regime should at the very least make you, should disqualify you from positions of authority here in the United States. And I don't know how to reconcile that. I mean, that was the dilemma at the beginning of Paperclip, although it wasn't much of a dilemma for some people. So something like that could effectively have excluded Harriman. But let's face it, what was really motivating us, it was utility. Could we use this guy? Was he useful for us in understanding how supersonic aerodynamics could be developed in the United States? And of course, with the, the rise of the Cold War, it became easier and easier to wish that away or to wash that away and, and obscure that. On the Soviet side, were those Germans allowed to rise to positions of authority within that system, or they just weren't persecuted? They were not... Uh, integrated into the Soviet Union. Basically, the Soviets set up research institutes in eastern Germany in their occupation zone. A few people were brought to the Soviet Union, but for the most part, the Soviets just sort of pumped them dry, isolated them, and then let them go back home in the 1950s. Hmm. And we were an immigration country, and we know how to integrate these people and imagine to have them here, whereas the Soviet Union is a paranoid totalitarian state and these Germans are viewed as potential foreign spies. So there was very little inclination to integrate them over the long run. The other thing I think that's really important to understand is that the Soviets had no sympathy whatsoever for Germans after what had gone down in World War II. And so I, I think there's a whole nother 
mindset. Is there any one technology outside of the rocket program that you can point to that may not have been possible without paperclip on, from the American side? Well, there's almost nothing the Germans did that we hadn't already started working on. So it was a question of where was the advantage in it for us. And the second most important thing was supersonic aerodynamics and aerodynamics of high-speed flight. So just to take a very uh, well-known case, the swept wing for high-speed aircraft powered by jets or rockets, that has now become normal. You look at your airliner and the wings have got a sweep back. They aren't straight. Uh, that was a new idea at, that came into American industry and American aerodynamics community at the end of the war in large part because of the Germans had developed that theory. Uh, Adolf Busemann, who was actually one of the Germans that came under paperclip and ended up at the NACA, a later NASA facility, he was the key guy who had developed the concept of the swept wing. And that played out directly. Hmm. It resulted in the redesign of the F-86 fighter and the B-47 jet bomber from straight wings to swept wings. And did we have, uh, we Americans, I mean, have our own missile technology, our own uh, jet technology? How far advanced were the Germans compared to us? Well, uh, in many parts of missile technology, the Germans were certainly ahead, simply because they spent a lot more money and started sooner. Most of those missiles were not deployed, other than the V-1, the V-2, and an anti-shipping missile that they did sink some ships with in the Mediterranean in 1943. Both sides had jets, British and the Germans, both deployed in the middle of 1944, but not in very large numbers and not much influence. The United States was just a little behind, but we weren't far behind the, the British and the Germans in this technology. In fact, the Air Force is very interested in all kinds of missiles. The Navy was interested in missiles. And so Herbert Wagner was the very first German scientist in May 1945, was brought here because he was a missile designer, and the Navy was interested in whether his missiles could be used to attack Japanese ships. And he was installed actually in this palatial mansion on Long Island to develop an understanding of German missile technology. And so the Air Force was very interested in bulking up American aircraft technology. And so it brought a bunch of people over, aerodynamicists, aircraft designers, engine designers, Alexander Lippisch, who was a designer of gliders and also the ME-163 rocket plane, had developed uh, concepts for a delta wing airplanes. And that was an idea that the American industry took off from. What, can you explain to me what a delta wing is? Basically a, tri you know, a triangular wing. Uh-huh. You know, again, imagine... Um, uh, is it like the stealth bomber when those first came out, those wings? The stealth bomber is an all-wing airplane, is a, is a single-wing airplane, which has no fuselage. But, but this is a... You have two wings that are s sharply swept back with a straight back's end. So effectively, the airplane is like a triangle. Hmm. And that's a high-speed design for aircraft. So that was one of those German technologies. We were interested in what they had in jet engines because... They had axial flow turbojet, which is now the normal kind of turbojet, where the air flows directly through the engine and you have these spinning blades. The original jet engines had 
combustion chambers where the air would be ducted into individual combustion chambers. So that had influence on jet engine design after World War II. So there were hydrogen peroxide rocket engines, also hydrogen peroxide submarines. So decomposing hydrogen peroxide, which is heated. And so, you know, it could be used essentially as a steam generator. Is that the same stuff you dye your hair with? Yeah. Huh. I mean, uh, what you get in the drugstore is like 3% concentration. Oh, I see. Because it's nasty stuff in high concentrations. You know, uh -huh. 3%, that means 3% hydrogen peroxide and 97% regular water. Uh, Helmut Walter came to the United States in 1950 under paperclip right. and developed the ability to work with 80% hydrogen peroxide, which is highly corrosive and difficult to handle, and if not handled correctly, will explode on you. So we were interested in that because this would be faster underwater propulsion. The hydrogen peroxide submarine led to this idea that maybe you could develop a submarine that could stay down, could cruise underwater at high speeds. However, it was kind of cut short because as the nuclear power came along, that was a much better solution <laughs> than, than hydrogen peroxide. We're going to take a quick break here on Paperclip. Anytime I watch a really great show, I think about how it all got made. How did the creators come up with storylines? What was it like for the cast to film the big action sequence? And how did they research their roles? Prime Video Presents is a new podcast that pulls back the curtain on Amazon original series and uncovers the stories behind your favorite shows. Listen to interviews with the talented minds behind shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Transparent, The Boys, and Hunters, and find out the real-life inspirations, relationships, and experiences that go into making the shows we love. Subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And now, back to Paperclip. One of the things that Monique and I have been talking about throughout the series are the ethical problems that Project Paperclip presented. How do we justify bringing Nazis into the United States but in the opposite side of the ethical conundrum, because in taking German technology and the great German minds, we also potentially could have hampered German recovery from the war. Has your research looked much into this and what, what the Allies were thinking in terms of how to both help themselves and help the Germans? In fact... The whole process of taking German technology and people out of Germany actually strengthened the connections between Britain, France, and the United States and the Western German powers and between Eastern Germany and, and the Soviet Union. So it had the effect opposite to what you might think. So you're saying that even though we were taking mines and taking technology and in one case taking a literal wind tunnel and shipping it back over to America, over time that actually had a beneficial effect for both countries. Why would that be? They found that they needed connections with people in Germany or German companies in order to understand the process and understand the technology. And so this ended up resulting in 
growing links between German corporations and American corporations. We were mostly interested in the patents, the people, and some of the knowledge that we could gain from understanding their industry and their processes and their technologies. We were determined to make sure that the Germans didn't rearm. So taking away their armament sector was not in contradiction with a general idea that the Germans can't be trusted and we want them disarmed. Right. If you don't want your enemy to to rearm, a good way to ensure they don't is to just take their their entire industry. One of the points that you're making, and I think a lot of people probably can understand, is that the Germans were perceived to have, and in some cases did have, towards the end of World War II, military application advantages in a few specific areas. And I understand why we may want some of those applications for our own national security. But there's another aspect of this, which to me just seems like greed on the American part. I was reading an article called The American Exploitation of German Technical Know-How After World War II by John Gimbel. And he writes that there were military units that were comprised largely or embedded within were just corporate executives. And they were just looking for stuff. And I'm just going to quote what he said. He says, their interests touched virtually every aspect of German industry and technology, including wind tunnels, tape recorders, synthetic fuels and rubbers, diesel motors, color film processing, textiles and textile equipment, machine tools, acetylene chemistry, ceramics, optics and optical glass, heavy presses, the cold extrusion of steel, heavy machinery, electrical condensers, electron microscopes, die casting equipment, and a long list of other things. This, to me, just sounds like corporate plunder. Well, I mean, industry was very interested in a lot of these guys and and was was putting in their bids for whom they would like to see join their companies. Right. And the Commerce Department was another player in this. Although I think in general, the industrial dimension turned out to be much less helpful than they thought it was going to be. There was a lot of interest in the chemical industry and electrical industry and German technology. Oil industry was interested in German synthetic oil production. You know, everything about the chemical industry in particular was very interesting from chemical weapons all the way to how do you make oil out of coal, which is something the Germans developed a lot because they had lacked adequate sources of of petroleum. Monique, were you saying that they different companies were bidding like you would draft ball players or something to try to get different German corporatists to join their companies or industrialists to join their companies? Yeah, it actually went both ways. Um, When you look at the files, it's really kind of interesting, actually, because you see industry asking for particular people, but also individuals addressing the Commerce Department trying to get placed Hmm. into into U.S. industry. Oh, so they were being like, hey, I want to play for the Yankees, and I want to play for Raytheon, and I want to play for, you know... General Electric. Kind of, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It changed over time because, in fact, the early phase of the uh, post-World War II uh, years were were heavily dominated by getting German technology in the military dimension and certain German industrial technologies. But later on, Paperclip became more of a channel for just immigrating scientists and engineers from Germany and also Austria. I have to note that there were a lot of them Hmm. because Austria had been part of a united Germany under the Nazis. And so as you get into that later 1950s phase, one of the services provided a middleman. So the Air Force in particular 
was getting some German aviation and rocket people over and sending them directly to the company. Oh, weird. So the military was acting like a human resources department. That's crazy. No, it was a it was a channel that the Air Force could help the aircraft industry. Right. You know, and they're looking for skill skills and the skill sets that the, that Germans may have. In later years, it would often just go directly to the company. Got it. In the end, it sounds like what you're saying is that these programs, including Paperclip, had a kind of beneficial, reciprocal relationship that certainly ended up benefiting West Germany and their recovery and reintegration into kind of respectable nationhood. And it's just fascinating to me that we can get sort of microscopic and macroscopic on this stuff and see how it's all interconnected and it's all related. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's really been interesting just to take a, a really deep dive into the broader scope of what we were doing with these German scientists, engineers, etc. And I really want to thank you again for coming on today. Well, I enjoyed talking to both of you. It was really interesting. Thanks a lot. So when we talk about the paper clippers as neighbors, as people who live next door to the American family on the block. Were there any considerations uh, on a social community level when the nature of Operation Paperclip changed from a, a temporary thing to a permanent pathway to citizenship? Yeah, so um, there were considerations about how this would affect Americans in general, but not so much on a neighborhood level, I don't think. Because at the time that it changes from a secret operation, most of them are still working on military bases, right? So the neighborhood thing really doesn't come in until, for instance, for the rocket team, until they move to Huntsville. Right. Um, and so right? once they did, it's 1950, they're in Huntsville. Um, suddenly, you know, there's people with very strong German accents moving in who are working on the rocket program and going to the local supermarket and, you know, buying sauerkraut. I mean, was there any, <laughs> was there any concern? Were there any protests? Everybody I've talked to outside of Huntsville expects that there would have been some kind of response from the community. But I think that's also from hindsight. You know, the people I spoke to, I did a lot of interviews with people. All they could tell me was, well, there might have been some backlash, but really very mildly. There was one rumor of a gas station owner who had fought uh, during the war and who wouldn't serve the Germans. And then the people I heard from who might have been more upset were either Jews or African Americans. And the Jewish community, I had a couple of stories. One was a, a, a woman who told me that her father forbade her from dating one of the German boys, um, just strictly, you know, you're not, you're not dating a German. I'm just trying to imagine that, like, that get to know you conversation with the parents of that couple. I guess what I'm saying is I'm cool with them for, with, with her, her her dad forbidding that that relationship. Yeah, and I'm pretty, no, and I'm pretty I'm, liberal. I'm actually pretty liberal, but yeah. I just feel like you know what? That's probably a relationship that's not going to work. And then you said the African American community had their own reaction to it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, for them, this was just more white people. And adding insult to injury, these were foreigners, non-citizens at the time, who had more rights than they as African-Americans had, you know, 1950s, of course. All right, Michael, um, now that we're kind of reflecting on this uh, podcast and this experience that we've had together, can you tell me a little bit about what surprised you the most about what we discussed? Well, what's interesting is I've gone on maybe more of a journey than you have because you already knew this material and I did not. And I came into it feeling like this is unequivocally wrong, a mistake on the Americans' part. And as we discussed with more nuance, the hows, the whys, the whos of it, my opinion began to soften. I wouldn't say it changed, but it softened a little bit. Partially because I feel like I understand better who the Americans were in that moment, how they were looking at the world, how I should say how we were looking at the world, and partially because I feel like I understand these Germans a little bit better. And despite myself, I find myself having a certain amount of sympathy for some of them. Living in the current moment, in America, and understanding how difficult it is for some people to speak out when speaking out is required, or people who are unwilling to sacrifice, say, their careers for ideas that may feel to them in the moment fleeting. I don't excuse that behavior. But I feel like, tragically, I have a better understanding of it. But I also feel like guilt by association isn't the same thing as guilt. And somebody's gifts may still have value when they are removed from that situation. It's so nuanced to me and complicated and heartbreaking in a lot of ways. I still think, on balance, paperclip was a mistake. But the edges have become a little fuzzier for me. After saying, referring to Americans at that time as they, you corrected yourself to refer to them as we. Mm. And I think that's really important for everybody to understand. This idea of we Americans as a continuum is problematic to me. And when we think about history, some people refer to it as, you know, history is a foreign country. You're going to visit that place and try to understand the people at that time. And if that's what you got out of this a little bit, I'm thrilled. And I think, you know, generationally, I think it's really also important that we get that when we talk to people of other generations, um, that we get that their experiences occurred in a different context than ours today. One thing I wanted to ask you is, since you told me that you are kind of a space cadet, or at least a fan of space exploration somewhat, mm -hmm. um, and NASA, I wonder how knowing this history might have changed how you feel about this, or maybe not? Um, 
the space cadet in me has always viewed NASA and the civilian space program through the most rose-tinted glasses. And part of me feels like a sucker for that, having come through this. Part of me feels like I was just a kind of dupe for the American propaganda machine, that NASA and all of its accomplishments, while wondrous, are also just another propaganda battle, a way of asserting our superiority over an alleged enemy. It's hard to not feel a little bit manipulated by all of it. It's hard to not feel a little bit like I'm just no better than any other pawn in this game. I'm, I'm just waving an American flag and going, yeah, we landed on the moon. And isn't that great? Um, and it is, but it also feels a little cheapened to me by knowing the deeper history of NASA. Well, I'm actually really sorry to hear that. I mean, I understand it, <laughs> obviously, but I also, I wonder, can NASA, the program, the things we did with space exploration, still be something to be excited about while we still recognize that it had some um, very nasty beginnings? It certainly can be, and I am still excited about all the stuff that we've done. I, I remain excited about the moon landing. I remain excited about the Hubble program and about the Mars program. But so much of my excitement about it has to do with a little kid's enthusiasm for the purity of exploration. And it's hard as an adult, I think, to retain that, knowing that so much of it is wrapped up in far more complex nuanced, rougher-edged aspects that maybe I just didn't want to see, you know? And, and Paperclip is just another example of that. No, I, I, I get that. I mean, that's essentially what historians deal with all the time, right? I'm You're sure. constantly looking back at so many events in history that are, you know, once you dig a little bit deeper, you go, oh my goodness. And in a lot of ways, like understanding the fuller story makes the story that much richer, but at the same time, there's that little part of you that just wants to go strap yourself into a rocket and go exploring, you know, right. and it's just, it's just not that easy. The moment that sticks out for me primarily is when we were talking about Werner von Braun and knowing his reputation here in America and then hearing about the blinders that he put on when people were working themselves to death and knowing that he was essentially stepping stepping around corpses on his way to work even though he didn't authorize slave labor even though he didn't directly put the lash to anybody I find that image unforgettable and unforgivable. Yeah, I get that. I think that's true for a lot of people. And, you know, a lot of people are shielded from that history. Can you refresh for me the German term that you teach all your students that I will never remember? Yeah, they don't either, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's Vergangenheitsbewältigung. And can you redefine that for me? 
Well, Vergangenheitsbewältigung uh, means something like grappling, dealing, reflecting on the past. It can be uh, translated different ways, but in the German context, it, it has a very distinct meaning. And it's about trying to make sense of it, but also not forget it. Is there an aspect of atonement in it? For me, there is. I don't know that that's true for every German. I do think there is some of that, and that's how it started, at least. The idea that Germans need to atone for this, and they need to always remember what happened on their clock, on their soil, and that they have a special responsibility because of that. I feel like we need that term in America to talk about race relations. That's another part of this series that I'll take away. The lack in English of that word and yeah. feeling like we need it so desperately here in America. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think talking about the interrelatedness of the histories of the people in Huntsville, their own, you know, the American history and the German history and how they're intertwined in many ways and how not talking about these things and not trying to grapple with these things perpetuates injustices. Well, Monique, we've reached the end of this series. I, I want to thank you. I mean, I've learned so much. And my last question for you, I guess, is, is simple. Do I get college credit for having gone through this with you? Because I feel uh, like I should. <laughs> that's a great question. I think you might want to inquire with a uh, institution near dean. you. <laughs> yeah, and Michael, thank you so much. I mean, it's been really fun. Um, it's been a weird way to get to know you. I feel like we've gone through a lot of emotions together, but still, it's been terrific, and I, I think I'll miss this. I will, too. It's interesting how something so abstracted from our day-to-day -day lives can quickly become so personal, how it can touch you in a pretty significant personal way. It, it does for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I do feel like I got to know you a bit and, and it's been great. Yes. Same here. Paperclip is funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios. The Los Angeles Times Newsroom was not involved in the creation of this series. <laughs>